0: good morning uh, today's passage comes from Matthew 18 uh, 1 through 14 um, so it reads at this time the d- d- disciples came to Jesus saying who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and calling to him a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles him like his child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven whoever receives one such child in my name receives me but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea woe to the world for temptations to sin for it is necessary that the temptations come but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes and if your hand or your feet causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in an in internal fire. And if your eyes causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into, heaven, uh, thrown into hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven these angels, other angels, always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones shall peri- uh, should perish uh this is the word of the lord
1: all right hello everyone uh sorry there's there was miscommunication about that it was one to 14 i guess uh our uh video tech that was one to four but uh, uh, we'll, we'll be going through the passage uh, more, and I uh, hope you're following along anyway with Christine uh, as she was reading it for us. Um, thank you, Christine, again for doing that. Anyway, uh, I am Pastor Paul. I'm one of the pastors of our church. Um, pastor Jeff, is uh, our, our English pastor, is uh, not sick. He is uh, recovering from his surgery that he had this past week. And he's recovering well, just not feeling uh, well enough to join us, but uh, keep him in your prayers. As he continues to recover. So um, we are beginning a new series, um, a a short series, through uh, the chapter, Matthew chapter 18. And so we're going to be giving three different messages based on this chapter. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. And the series is called Life in Kingdom Community. And basically um, what we want to show is that in this chapter we see what Jesus describes to be a life in community together as a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, Basically, how we are to live in the midst of the body of Christ as the church. So uh, this chapter talks about making sure we don't lead each other into sin. It's going to be something we talk about today. And how we are to deal with conflict in the body of Christ. That's a big one that we uh, will focus on as well and how we are to forgive one another and love one another. So uh, there's a lot going on here uh, in this chapter, and that's why we thought we could make it a series, and we thought it might be relevant to our church and how we live in kingdom community as cornerstone. So today um, we're looking at the first 14 verses that were read, so we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in diving into his word. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this chapter in particular and our passage for today. Lord, help us to see the ways in which you call us to live in community, to love one another, to to deny ourselves, and to truly live as you call us to live. So God, help us to use these principles in our, our own walks with you and in our interactions with one another and those around us. And so, God, we pray that you help us here today to open up our hearts and eyes and minds to see your truth and that your spirit would work in us so that we can believe in you that much more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I'm a big sports fan. Uh, If you guys didn't know about me, I enjoy watching all types of sports. My wife complains about how much I enjoy it. But uh, I especially enjoy watching basketball. It's one of the things I really enjoy watching. Right now it's the NBA Finals, and so it's been a lot of fun watching those games, even though they happen at like 9 o'clock at night. They're so late, but um, it's exciting, it's entertaining. Um, I get really animated at times, sometimes a little too animated. You know, my wife tells me to calm down, don't wake up the kids, and things like that, right, when our children are asleep. Uh, but this started as a, as a kid for me. I always loved sports as a kid. My brother introduced it to me. Um, I would watch him play and enjoy and watch sports as well. And um, as a kid especially, I really admired these athletes. They were really, um, I really thought they were so cool and talented and athletic. And you could tell a lot of people really looked up to these athletes. They were considered to be icons. They were on commercials. Uh, They had a lot of style because, you know, these brands would sponsor them. And most of all, they were winners, right? If you were a winner, if you were a champion, uh, people would talk about how great these accomplishments are. And uh, they were admired even more for those accomplishments. So the epitome of that was Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was the biggest star when I was growing up. He had his own commercials. This was new back in those days to have your own commercial. He had his own shoe brand, which is the most iconic shoe brand now. The Jordan brand. And he was the person everyone wanted to be. There's a Gatorade commercial that said, I want to be like Mike, right? To be like Michael Jordan. It was a slogan that we all knew that we all were so accustomed to hearing. It's like knowing the State Farm commercial jingle, right? It, is, it was iconic. Everyone knew who Michael Jordan was. And we all wanted to be like him. We all truly wanted to be like Mike. And we admired him based off of his Accomplishments and his abilities. Uh, Unfortunately, I had a love hate relationship with Michael Jordan because I am a New York Knicks fan and he would always beat the Knicks and he would single handedly be the reason why my team has never won in my lifetime. And so it is very sad. But nevertheless, we still admired him. We wanted to be like Mike. And oftentimes we judge people based on their accomplishment, not just athletes and other famous people, actresses, celebrities, whatever the case may be. Uh, We do this with other normal people as well. We base uh, how we judge them on their accomplishments, their status, and in some ways we want to be like them. And the apostles in our passage have the same exact thought here, probably because it's naturally that we think of when we, of when we think who is greater or better, we, we naturally think that way, right? When we think who is better, who is greater, we think about their accomplishments, we think about their status, and so on and so forth. And the fact that the disciples were even asking this question to Jesus meant that they actually misunderstood what it meant to be great, what it meant to be better in this life. And even in the church context, we probably do this as well. We admire those who appear to be holy, right, who seem to be holy or who seem to be even successful. We kind of judge people like that even in the church context. We do that. Or those who know the Bible well, right, we judge them in that way. And in a good way, we're like, oh, wow, you know your Bible really well. You know your theology really well, right? But we see here in our passage that Jesus says something that's completely revolutionary, completely the opposite of what you may normally think is better or greater. He says a child. A child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now in this passage, he doesn't mean a literal child. In other passages, he actually does mean literal children, but here he doesn't talk about, just talk about literal children, but that we are to be like a child, that we are to be like children. Verse 4 of our passage says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So greatness as followers of Christ, as Christians, is not about what you do, your status and your accomplishments, but it is about humility, to be humble like a child. So why like a child? Well, a child is absolutely dependent on an adult, on a guardian or a parent, they're vulnerable, and that's why we talk about protecting children at all costs. If there's any danger, who do we protect? We protect our children because they are vulnerable. They have so many years to live. We protect them and sacrifice ourselves instead. So in the sense of being vulnerable and needy, they are humble. Right? And in another way that a child is humble is that they have this childlike trust right? Children will follow you and do whatever you tell them to do in many ways, right? Even the things that they shouldn't do. Uh, And a lot of times, they don't do this even consciously, right? It's just like an unconscious behavior where they know that they have to follow someone, even to just survive, even to just know that they need help. They know that they need help with basic things, right? That's why Children can be very trusting at times, and they'll follow strangers into cars, and we're like, no, don't do that, right? No, and we teach children stranger danger from early on because they're so willing to trust people. Um, And that's why we need to teach our children these things, and and a child has to trust a parent or someone in charge of him to take care of him or her because that's what's necessary for their survival. That's why even a baby, an infant, cries all the time for whatever they need for being tired, being, having, uh, having to be put to bed, for needing a diaper change, they cry. Everything is a cry for help, essentially, right? For food. They know that they need help. They cannot feed themselves. They cannot go to the bathroom themselves, or they can't change themselves. They can't go to sleep without being put to bed by someone else. And actually, you know, they say when you become old, you end up becoming like a child again, and, you, can, you know, when you're really old, you can't feed yourself even. You can't bathe yourself. You can't even go to the bathroom on your own. Uh, my grandfather-in-law, so Yina's grandfather, my wife's grandfather, he, he, he himself is really old. He's a great-grandfather, so obviously he's old. And he actually had a stroke a while back, and he actually hasn't mentally fully recovered. You know, that happens sometimes, especially when you're older and you have a stroke. But he still takes pride in being fairly physically fit and healthy, and he actually volunteers himself, this old man volunteers at a nursing home. You know, very ironic, where he volunteers and he actually bathes other grandpas, right? And so now, mind you, my wife's grandfather is sometimes even older than these people that he's bathing, right? This guy is older than these other old men. And often these old men complain about being humiliated to feel that because a fellow grandpa is bathing him, someone even older than them, right? who should be in a worse physical condition, is helping them to do a very simple task in our minds, right? They have to be totally vulnerable. And we can understand, if we were in that position, why this would be humiliating, right? And although humiliation and humility are not the same thing, they come from the same root. They both have a meaning of losing our pride. And sometimes, unfortunately, humiliation is even necessary for humility but again they're not the same thing and humiliation is uh, to cause some p- painful loss of pride or di- dignity it's really really painful and it leads to shame right and that's not ultimately what god wants maybe god uses shame to bring us to him but he doesn't want us to stay in our shame that's not what he wants ultimately and again sometimes though that's what we need for us to be humble before god But humility, on the other hand, is all about lowering our self-importance, losing our pride in the sense we lower our importance of who we are. We don't think so highly of ourselves, right? Realizing we are not as good as we think we are, that we are more needy than we actually think we are. And C.S. Lewis, he puts it really well. He says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So to not think of yourself as the most important, but to think of others as more important. So when Jesus says to be like children, he calls us to acknowledge we have limitations. Acknowledge we have a neediness towards God. And we also need one another as well. And the place where we see our neediness the most, the most profound way is on the cross where Jesus Christ humbly died on our behalf to the point of death for our sake. And when we see that truth, it humbles us because we see how much we needed Jesus to save us. It is the very opposite of what the disciples initially thought of what being the greatest was all about. We think of greatness as someone who has a lot of pride, actually, right? Someone who is arrogant, who is even cocky at times, and, know, and they, they know they are great because they have a lot of confidence in themselves. probably have thought of someone in your mind who is like this already. And in a worldly sense, that is oftentimes those who become successful um, in the world. The most successful people in our world are usually very prideful, usually very, very arrogant, very full of themselves, very determined to be successful at all costs. But Jesus actually says that's not what really matters. That's not what makes you the greatest in the kingdom community. It's not about being successful at all costs. It's about being humble at all costs. And so why is humility such an important characteristic of those who live in kingdom community? Well, let's continue in our passage to see what what Jesus says. And he says here in verses five to six, he says, um, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, if you don't know what a millstone is, it's this heavy stone that's used for grinding up and crushing grain. So you would strap this on uh, strap uh, like a rope onto the back of a donkey, and this donkey would go around in a circle to move the stone around to grind the things up. You know, think of it like a huge coffee grinder, right? But a coffee grinder we can grind on our own, but instead it's this huge stone that needs a, a huge donkey to move it around to grind things up. Now imagine you have that stone, this humongous stone wrapped around your neck, and you are thrown into the ocean to be drowned. Now, execution by drowning is not common. You know, it's not common in ancient Israel. But Jesus uses this imagery anyway. And it's this hyperbole in a sense. And it's because he is emphasizing how horrible this is. It's like saying nowadays, oh, it's like a guy should be guillotined for what he did. And we should put his head on a stake. And we should put him to shame for what he's done and and laugh and mock him, right? It's very extreme to say something like this. And this is a type of image Jesus is using, a very extreme image. And he's using this to emphasize that sin is bad. Sin is really, really bad. And he continues this emphasis in verses 7 to 9 where he talks about staying away from sin. He says this, um... It's not working. Can you go to the next slide? Woe to the world for temptations to sin. So woe in the biblical context is like, oh no. Like, oh no. It signifies something terrible about to happen. Whenever you see like, oh no, in a movie, you know it's going downhill from there, right? It is impending doom. And this impending doom is the wrath of God. His condemnation, if we fall into the sins of the world, Then he goes on to talk about how we are to stay away from sin at all costs, to cut off our hand, to cut off our foot, to tear our eye out if it's causing us to sin. Jesus is emphasizing this need for self-discipline, right? this need to remove sin radically. We can't stay in sin. Sin is bad. We need to get rid of it. We're called to no longer remain in it, but actually we are free from it. And if we remain in and if we actually remain in our sin, then we know what the consequences are, the consequences of the wrath of God, the punishment, hell. And Jesus talks about hell as a real place where those who do not repent of their sins turn and turn to Jesus will remain in hell forever. That is what happens when we give in to our sinful nature. But everything that Jesus is talking about here actually comes from a place of love, we see the Father's heart. and when we, when we continue on in this passage, we see his love for his sheep. Right? right after these warnings about sin, we see the parable of the lost sheep where Jesus says how the Father goes after the one sheep. He goes after it. He does not want a single one of them to perish. He leaves the 99 behind to go after the lost sheep. Right? The Father ultimately display, displays this love through Jesus and how Jesus died for us. And he gives us a way out of sin. And it is by us having faith in Christ and what he did for us. And so that now that we have this freedom from sin because of Jesus and we have this victory in Jesus over sin and death through his own death and resurrection, we can actually now do this. We can actually now turn away from sin. We can remove sin from our lives. We can now have what's called sanctification, sanctification progressive sanctification means we progressively over time we are changed to be more and more like god we can remove sin more and more it won't be perfect we are not perfect we still are in sin unfortunately and that won't change until jesus returns but we can do more and more of it we can overcome it by the cross by what he did for us we have victory that we can claim through faith in him so continuing in sin and leading others into sin is a clear sign that doom is coming, right? Sinning yourself is already bad, but sinning against someone and, that, and ultimately that leads them into sin or leads them away from Jesus much more heinous in the eyes of God, far worse than even us sinning ourselves. So how does this warning to avoid sin and avoid leading others to sin connect with humility? So I think a better way of looking at it, or a better way of asking maybe, what happens if we are humble, right? What happens when we are humble? Well, or actually, what happens when we are not humble, right? What happens if we are not humble? Well, then the opposite of humility would be pride. Then we are prideful. And pride is what often brings us into sin, and will actually lead others to sin as well. So this passage is telling us to be humble like a child, to humble yourselves at all costs, because pride is what will lead to sin. Pride is what will lead to sin. And so I'm going to share a couple of quotes for us. The first is by a pastor named Jason Meyer, and he says this regarding pride. He says, Pride is self-obsession. Pride is preoccupation with ourselves. Therefore, it is a lie about reality. It says I am worth thinking about all the time. It is an orientation that wrongly assumes that everything revolves around us. So we see here from our quotes that pride provokes us to sin against those around us because we are so preoccupied with ourselves. But when we're so preoccupied with ourselves, when we're so obsessed with ourselves, we're naturally going to sin against those around us. We only look at our own lives, our own desires, our own passions, our own problems. So Of course that means I'm not going to love my neighbor. Of course that means I'm going to hurt them and use them for my own benefit. That's why why pride is a root of many of our sins. It's our self-centeredness. Self centeredness that leads us to lie against them, to cheat against them, to, to steal, to hurt them. It's because we're so obsessed with ourselves and we could care less about those around us. We see this even how the disciples acted and how they sought to see not only who was the greatest in the kingdom, but also who amongst themselves was the greatest. We see this in Luke 22. They argue amongst themselves. It has an account of the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. And this is right during the Last Supper. Jesus is about to die, and this is what they're arguing about. Right? They're about to have their final meal with him. And all they can think about is, oh, who's the best among us? Who's the greatest among us? And I'm sure some of the disciples were thinking, oh, I'm definitely the best, right? I'm the one who's with Jesus all the time. These guys, they're lazy. They like, fall asleep all the time when we're praying. You know, they're like, you know, when Jesus is preaching, they fall asleep. But I, I'm, I'm wide awake. I'm right at the front listening to Jesus with open ears, right? I'm, I'm always ready to go. Jesus like, we got to go here. I'm not complaining. I'm going. I'm sure this was some of the thinking of these disciples. But Jesus immediately flips it. And in Luke 22, he says, you know, it doesn't matter who's the greatest. It doesn't matter at all. Right? Does the, the greatest just get to relax and just be served? That's what Jesus essentially says. Right? Do they just relax and, and chill and just be served by others? Right? When he, and he says, like, in fact, I came to serve. Right? Jesus himself is the one who serves. So we, we see the same theme here. It's not about being served, about us. It's about humility. It's about serving others and not always being the center of Attention, center of your life. Pride is always about serving only yourself. And this is not a not just a word to these disciples. This is a word to us. This most certainly can be us. We too also need to be careful of our pride. If not, we will sin against those around us. We see these in we see this in all types of situations we encounter in life. One really bad one is adultery where a spouse cheats and oftentimes does so fully realizing the consequences, but doing it anyway for fulfillment that they feel like they're missing in their marriage, satisfaction that they're missing in their marriage. Of course, there's a lot of things that lead up to something like adultery. It's not usually just a moment of weakness, right? It's not usually just that. There are usually big issues of unhealthiness in a marriage when adultery happens. But this also includes in our interactions in our workplaces, in our schools, in our friends, in the midst of strangers, how we treat strangers around us. When we're so preoccupied with ourselves, how do we even treat those that we do not know? There was a story about uh, this huge conference where 12,000 Christians met, and this one guy was curious about how the, these Christians interacted with uh, those that were you know, the businesses and the uh, vendors around that conference center and it was very disheartening for this man to hear that they felt these christians were rude were mean were entitled how are we to be how are we prideful how do we do this amongst our neighbors amongst strangers how do we treat them do we truly just care about ourselves or do we truly seek to serve those around us. So may we be humble at all costs. The second quote I want to share is by Jonathan Edwards, and um, he's one of the more prominent American theologians. Uh, Some would say he is the most prominent from the 1600s. He was actually the president of Princeton University, just a fun fact, right before he died. Um, But uh, unfortunately, recently, uh, things have come out where he was uh, known to be a slave owner at the time. And we know the ways in which um, America has, has uh, been complicit in slavery, or has uh, had slavery, and how Christians have been complicit in slavery uh, and in racism in those days, and even now, it's a huge sin that we continue to deal with even today. But uh, there were many things that he wrote and he did were, that were really um, noteworthy and great, uh, but I wanted to just kind of give you that ca- caveat about him, and none of us are perfect, of course. Uh, but we don't want to throw, everything that he, or throw away everything that he said, because like I said, he is one of the more prominent American theologians. And he says this about pride, which I find to be very, very true. He says, It is by spiritual pride that the mind defends and justifies itself in other errors and defends itself against light by which it might be corrected and reclaimed. The spiritually proud man thinks he's full of light already and feels that he does not need instruction. So he's ready to ignore the offer of it. So because of this pride, and he talks about spiritual pride here, right? our mind, we defend against errors to the truth, errors to the gospel. That means we're defending falsehoods. We defend error. And so pride ultimately leads others into sin by leading them away from the truth we lead them into error. This is what the passage is talking about. And we don't even realize we're doing it at times. Or we may think we're we're sharing godliness, we're preaching godliness and truth, but instead sometimes we are preaching a false gospel. And we need to be wary of this and mindful of this. And this is biblical and we see in many ways people in the church were teaching false things and we see this in the Bible again and again. And Paul writes to Timothy here about those who bring error in the church in First Timothy 6, 3 to 5. Let me read that for us. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness godliness is a means of gain. So Paul is basically saying that those who bring this controversy and this false teaching, they're conceited. They're puffed up. They're prideful, full of pride and conceit. And false teachers especially, they use godliness. right? They use godliness as a means of gain meaning material wealth, right? Paul is speaking of this because it probably happened, and it's happening in the church. He has witnessed it. And in church history, if you pay attention, we constantly witness this. An example now of that would be what is called the Word of Faith movement, all right? And this is better known as the modern health and wealth gospel, right? This is a salvation by works gospel, and I don't want to name who these people are. You guys can look them up for yourselves. But you can look, and you can look up this movement and see who the, one, who the, who the main people are. But these are famous people who have shows on television. These are the people oftentimes you see on Sunday mornings as, as televangelists, all right? And these people, in many ways, are leading others away from the truth and into a false gospel. And the main issue here is that in this Word of Faith movement, they promote this idea that if you have enough faith, if you do enough good works, if you pay enough money to the church, God will bless you materialistically, right? And there's no qualifier there, no indication that you may not get what you want, that God doesn't always bless you with money if you faithfully follow him, right? Just that if you have enough faith and if you do enough good deeds in the Lord... God will bless you. That's what these people say. And actually, if you are not rich or if you are sick, if you're not healed from your disease, you don't get a good job, if you're not wealthy, you're not in a good relationship, you don't have a good job, that means your faith is not good enough. You need to have better faith. You need to believe in God more, trust in Him more, right? If your family member doesn't believe in Jesus, if your relationships aren't repaired, you are not trying hard enough. You have to have more faith. You need to try more things, give more to the church. Now, this might sound like a Christianity that you're used to hearing, and I'm and I really sorry if that is what you're used to hearing and if this is what you grew up with maybe. That is not the truth. The truth is that we are in need of a savior because of our sinfulness. And we can never earn our salvation. And so we can never have good enough faith. Or we, we can never do good enough works. But Jesus instead by his grace saved us so that we don't have to do good works to be saved. We are saved by faith. By simply believing in him. For what he did on the cross. So our faith is what now unites us to Christ. And even our faith doesn't even come from our own. It comes from his grace upon us, his spirit working in us to have faith. And now when God sees our record, even with our weak faith, he sees Christ. When God sees us, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. Christ has substituted, taken our place. That is the truth of what the gospel is. The blessing isn't money. The blessing isn't health. There's no guarantee of that. And if you look at the Bible, Christians suffered. They were martyred. You're more likely, more likely to suffer in this life when you follow Christ. That's what the Bible says. Just look at what the apostles endured. They suffered for Christ. So this Word of Faith movement has this twisted idea of what the gospel is and turned it into a prosperity gospel, turned it into a health and wealth gospel. Unfortunately, so many people fall victim to this. And many of these churches have thousands and thousands of followers and people. But also, many have been hurt by this gospel. Many people have given all their money and dedicated so much of their time and energy to serve these different movements, but saw how evil it was, saw how corrupt it was, saw how it was all about money. That's all they cared about. And it was unloving. And they were just used and abused. Steve Byers, a Christian professor, says this about the Word of Faith leaders. He says, Word of Faith leaders see themselves as bringing a new spiritual revelation to the body. This revelation knowledge is limited to the few who can receive it. The rest of us are at a disadvantage. This is elitism. This is spiritual pride. So because of their desire for fame and fortune... They bring forth this gospel that sounds appealing. It sounds good. It sounds godly. Who wouldn't want more money and better health? Because they want to draw people in. Because they themselves are oftentimes getting rich off these people's donations. And they are drawn to it more and more, and they're getting more and more successful. They think God is giving them this new special revelation. They think they're special anointed prophets to the church and they no longer trust in the word. They no longer preach the gospel. They no longer preach Christ. If we are not careful, this could be us. This could be what we preach. This could be what we say is the truth. We have the capability of doing this ourselves, of hurting others in such a way that may lead Christians to reject the gospel. It's not just to point out, oh, look at these false teachers. Be, you know, be careful of them, of course. Be careful of these false, false teachers. But this should be leading us to look within ourselves, to see the ways that we are proud, that we believe in a false gospel, that we live out a false gospel and lead others away because we have a false gospel. It's not just for pastors and leaders as well. Of course, it starts with us and what we are teaching. But for all of you, what you are promoting, what you are sharing in your communities, are you promoting some other false teaching Perhaps this workspace teaching. Perhaps this God will bless you if you're good. Maybe that's the false teaching that we're doing. So may this remind us of how careful and mindful we need to be as a local church. And, And that's just one example. There are other ways in which this happens, in which pride has caused so much damage in the church. There's been a huge scandal, scandals of, Domestic and child abuse, and the the largest denomination in our country, Southern Baptist Convention, has a huge report about it. And, you know, this church, in many ways, lines up with us in what we believe. What they believe is, in many ways, what we believe. And they have a huge problem of sexual abuse, child abuse, among their leadership and individual churches. And there's a lot of issues of cover-up. And we see this in the Catholic Church, what has happened there over the course of history which has been notorious for covering up abuses as well. And the thinking here in terms of these types of cover-ups is that we think we can get away with it. Right? We think we can brush it off. We think you know, this will create unity. This, you know, If we let this come out, this will be disunity. This will create chaos in the church. And so you know, we think we're doing something godly by you know, brushing it off, by making sure this person doesn't say anything about their abuse. And we think we can do that as... Especially leaders, because we have the authority, right? We're given authority given to us by God. And we don't need to be held accountable. It's okay. Like, it's better for the unity of the church instead. And this is not new, this is real and evident. We see this all the time in churches around us. And that makes this plea that much stronger be humble at all costs, because there are consequences, not just in the next life, not just hell. But now there are consequences. So many people turning away from Christ because of our actions or our inactions. So, brothers and sisters, be humble at all costs. Look to the cross. The cross is where we lay down our crowns because Jesus laid down his life. The humble king who gave his life for the ransom of many. And if we already think, yeah, I'm pretty humble. I'm not that selfish, I'm not that arrogant, I'm pretty good. Well, that already may be the problem. If that's how we're thinking, we will be much more prone to sin against each other and lead others into error, away from the truth. We should never, ever think we are humble enough. Our hearts are so prone to sin, to be proud So may God help us over and over again to have a desire to be more and more humble in our lives. And whenever we begin to feel proud of ourselves, look to the cross. Look to Christ and see what he did. He did something that we could never do. Our great king humbled himself for us because we could not save ourselves. How how could we be proud? How could we be... How could we boast of anything that we did not do at all? We did not save ourselves. We look to Jesus for what he did. We are utterly in need of a Savior. And may that truth, may the truth of the gospel, humble us so that we can grow in our holiness and our faithfulness and so that we would never be blinded from the truth of the gospel and that we would love one another, that we would be kind to one another, that we would display this light of Christ to one another, and to truly live in kingdom community as God calls us to. May the Lord help us all in this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us the ways in which we are proud, the ways in which we sin against you, others around us, and how we are prone to lead them away from the truth because of our pride. So God, help us. Humble us. Humble our hearts. Help us to see that that is the way we need to live in this kingdom community, in humility to truly love one another, serve one another. Not thinking what, what's in it for us all the time. Not thinking what, what does church have for us. Or well, what do these communities have for us? What do life groups have for us? What do fellowships have for us? What do Sunday service have for us? No, may we instead look to see how we can serve one another because we all trust in the Lord. We trust in what you have done through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we see this humble king who died on our behalf and how we need him and we all need him and we need each other because, Lord, we cannot live this walk, this Christian walk on our own. God, help us to see this. Help us to see this more and more in our lives. And may you lead us away from sin and temptation and lead us towards the truth, towards the gospel, so that we can be your light and we can share what is actually the truth. Help us, O Lord. May you be glorified here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.